book of Matthew chapter 4. <clears throat> I don't know that we'll be able to finish the message up tonight. That's my goal is to finish the message. But we'll see how <clears throat> we proceed through with uh, the passage. Jesus has been led to be tempted by the devil. He has been led by the Spirit of God <clears throat> as a man. He has been led into a barren location. And according to Jewish thought and Jewish understanding, <clears throat> it was the wilderness is where evil spirits abided at. So to their understanding, it would have been Jesus being led by the Spirit directly into the region of the evil one to be tempted by the devil. He is there and he is fasting for 40 days and 40 nights and then he becomes hungry. So let's begin reading Matthew chapter 4, <clears throat> verse 1, down through the second temptation. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, <clears throat> he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live <clears throat> on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city. Luke says that that is the city of Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle or the extremity of the temple, and said to him, <clears throat> If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, <clears throat> You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. We've noted that these temptations are unique, and they are unique to the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. <clears throat> However, believers are tempted in the same general categories. And what I'm trying to do here is not only to enter into the meaning of the temptation, but really to enter into the mindset. What could have been in Jesus' heart and mind? What was He thinking as He was engaging this type of temptation? We've seen that in the first temptation, <clears throat> Jesus' mindset shows that He understood Deuteronomy chapter 8, the first 10 verses. He was knowledgeable of it, and he was persuaded of it, that man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God does man live. And what Jesus, in essence, was saying, if we would paraphrase it, is that I don't live by bread alone. My soul is satisfied even if my body painfully hungers. In other words, his body would have been screaming at him to what? To eat. But the Word of God <clears throat> was saying something that differed. 
Jesus could have said, my physical life is to be lived by bread and the word, but if the bread is gone, the word will sustain my physical being. So I will trust in my Father's providence and he will provide in due time. What Jesus actually believed is that more necessary than food on the table was obedience to what God has said. And that really is where the conflict comes. When the conflict comes and what we are desiring, it begins to overthrow the preeminence of obeying what God has said. And we all know a little bit about that. It's easy when the sun is shining and the food is on the table and the shelter is over the head and the body is healthy to say, oh yes, my only drive in life is to be obedient to the word of God. But if those things begin to be lacking, they begin to rise in importance in our life versus obeying what God has said. So here's a temptation that is associated with, I'm just going to use this broad category, Famine. It is a lack of bodily necessity. And we can apply that to food, not having enough food in the cupboard. We could apply that to going without water. Water is a bodily necessity, isn't it? We could apply that to shelter. We could apply that to various provisions in life. Uh, It could be, well, I know that I've got a bill coming up, and so how do I handle that? What do I do? How much energies do I put into it, into trying to provide for that provision? And it definitely could apply to the bodily need of health. When we have health needs, that's a real struggle. And our health needs can cry to us much louder than the still small voice of being obedient to the will of God. All of these things that I had mentioned affect the body. These were bodily needs here in this category. But there are also things and temptations that occur that are associated with Religion. And I'm using that term in a good sense. That is God Himself. And that is what the second temptation is about. The devil's going to quote whose word? God's own word. This is a temptation that is associated with our religious situation. And Jesus is being brought into a bodily necessity, a famine, in which he is illustrating what Paul wrote in the book of Philippians. I have learned in whatever state I'm in to be, can we say it? Content. Content. Is Jesus expressing contentment in this first temptation? He is. Whether... Paul was abounding or whether he was without. This is what contentment looks like. It looks like a man who says, it doesn't matter whether I have an abundance or whether I have a famine, what's important for me is doing the will of God. And that was Paul. 
there in the prison. The category of temptation that is associated with our religious profession is probably one of the most dangerous categories that believers have to confront. I've observed this not only in my own life, I've observed this in Christian's life, I've observed this in pastoring for some going on close to 40 years. Believers stumble at this category of temptation. When other temptations fail, this temptation seems to secede. And what Jesus is being confronted with here is that the devil is building off of the previous temptation. Now follow me here. When our Lord said, I do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, He was exhibiting trust. Do you agree with that? He's exhibiting trust in the Father. Not only did Jesus exhibit it, that He is living by trust in the Father, Jesus says by what He speaks that He is also trusting what God said. God said... Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So he's trusting and he's leaning on what God has said. Everybody see those two things. Well, as believers, what, do, what are we doing? Are we supposed to be or driving to be people of the book? The answer is that is yes. And are we not trusting in our belief of being a person of the book. We're striving for that also. And so since Jesus exhibited trust and he exhibited that he was, to be, he was a person of the book, the devil now goes after those two things. He actually goes after him being a person of the book by quoting the book. And the passage that he quotes is a passage that directly addresses Jesus' trust. So really what the devil is saying to him is, if you're really trusting and you're really believing by the promises of God, then I'm going to put you in a position where you will demand for God to do what He said He would do. Everybody, everybody following that. Okay? Because there are multitudes of believers, and I myself have been one of those, who have failed in this particular category. Why do I say that this is probably the category of temptation that not only is the most dangerous, but that believers fail in. Well, we'll see this in a moment, Lord willing. But in the book of Numbers, God says to Moses, 
that the children of Israel had put him to the test ten times. Now think about that. Ten times in what time frame? Well, chronology is difficult to do, but the best that I could come up with is that it was about 10 to 12 months between the meeting at Mount Sinai to going into the land of Canaan and they send in the 12 spies. And of course, they failed with that too, did they not? So what we have in 10 to 12 months, we have 10 times, God says, that they put him to the test if that chronology is correct. We can look at it this way. The children of Israel put God to the test and failed once a month. Now think about that. That's pretty frequent, isn't it? Perhaps this is the category of temptation that is the most difficult and the most ensnaring for a professing, believing people. What is happening here? Well, Jesus moves locations. He moves from the wilderness where the first temptation occurred, to being led, the Bible says, verse 5, the devil took him, and he took him from the wilderness to the city of Jerusalem. He situates the Lord at the highest point of the temple complex. Now if you read commentators today, most of them think that that temptation occurred at the highest point of the temple wall. And so I actually have a picture in my photographs when we were there. You look down through the valley, you can see what they call the pinnacle of that wall. And that wall is about 20 stories high. That might have been the location, but the text says that it took Christ to the highest point of the temple complex. If he took him to the pinnacle, the extremity of the temple, it perhaps would have been at the top or at the height of the Holy of Holies. That's a little bit different than on the top of the wall. If that's the case, we're talking about way more than 20 stories. We're talking about being situated on the top of the extremity of the temple area. The text says that the devil actually had him stand at that extremity. We don't know how that happened. Of course, the Lord would not have done that unless he was led to do that. But the devil actually, as it were, put him on the extremity of that temple. So you can think about being at a very dizzying height, 
And there's various degrees of understanding about the height of that temple and where the highest point would be. A lot of discussion about that. But let's just say this, it's more than 20 stories and 20 stories is high. <clears throat> 20 stories is somewhere around 164 feet. And if it's at the top of the complex of the Holy of Holies, it would have been higher than that. <clears throat> Here he is at that highest point, And the devil quotes the promise of God. He says, it is written, He will command His angels concerning you. And it is written, on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now I want us to turn to Psalm 91. This is actually the quotation <clears throat> that the devil himself is quoting. It's in Psalm 91, <clears throat> verses 11 and 12. And I'm just going to read it. You read it there in your own translation, of course. Psalm 91, verse 11. For He will give His angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. Did the devil quote the passage? A lot of commentators and people today say that the devil misquoted the Scripture. Is Psalm 91 verse 11 a promise? Is verse 12 a promise? It is a promise. And what we have here in Psalm 91 is that this is a psalm, and I'm not just saying this because of the title of the psalm, but it is a psalm of a person who trusts in the Lord. You'll see that if you have a caption in my Bible it says, Security of the One Who Trusts in the Lord. But let me show you this in the psalm. Look at verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, <clears throat> my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Everybody see that? I actually have that phrase highlighted here in my Bible. That this psalm is a psalm about a man, the Messiah, about a man who trusts the Lord. And what the psalm does is it gives to that man who trusts the Lord a lot of promises about what God will do for that man. <clears throat> Here we have in the first two verses, my God in whom I will trust. Look down at verse 9. For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. In other words, he, he's saying, look, you and I have placed our trust in the same thing. 
The Lord is my refuge. He's your refuge too. What does it mean to have the Lord as your refuge? I put my trust in you. Or look down at verse 14. Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. <clears throat> I will rescue him and honor him. With a long life, I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. Those are great promises. You agree? And those are promises from the Lord himself to the Messiah, the ultimate one who will trust in him, and to all of God's people who are trusting in him. This psalm is in effect an assurance or a guarantee from God the Father of deliverance. Or we could use the word salvation. And here is this man who's made the Lord his refuge, his dwelling place. He loves the Lord. He knows the Lord. He prays to the Lord. And the Lord will let him see his salvation. Some people say that the devil took the passage out of context. Well, it seems that it is in context. This man's trusting the Lord. Listen to the promises that God gives to this man. If you want the, the verses, I can give them to you, but I'm just going to go through them very rapidly. So just, just listen. These are all in this passage. Here is a promise to a man who trusts God. He will be shielded from the heat of the day. You will be delivered from unforeseen snares and illnesses. You will have no fear in the face of danger. You will be saved from unforeseen illness or destructive circumstances. You will be delivered from multitudes of adversities. You will be assured to see with your own eyes God's judgment upon wicked people. Your home would be peaceful even though outside your home there would be trouble. Angelic protection to guard your path of life. Angelic protection from stumbling in the path of life. And you would have dominion over lions and serpents. Your prayers would be answered and you would always behold God's goodness in your life. Those are great promises. <laughs> and the devil quotes this psalm to the Lord. Did he understand that the one that was trusting was the Messiah? Possibly. So folks, here's the thing. I've noted as we've gone through very quickly that the quotation seems to be accurate. I've noted that the context of the psalm seems to be accurate that it is one of assurance of deliverance in all the circumstances of life. 
and that we would encounter no evil in our lifetime. Accurate verse, accurate context. What's going on here? Do you think the devil gave Jesus that verse just to assure him? What the devil does is that he uses the Scripture slanderously. Peter would say twisting. And what the devil is doing is he is using the Scripture in an isolated manner. Now let me explain. He's presenting this passage to Christ in this particular circumstance as if it was the only Scripture in the Bible that deals with that circumstance. And this is where believers fall. I read a <clears throat> mention this morning <clears throat> to someone. I read an article several weeks ago. It may have been a month ago. Testimony of a young man <clears throat> who wanted to. He was a believer, and he wanted to play football in the SEC conference. That's Alabama, Georgia, Tennessee. If you're not a football fan. Very strong football conference. And he was doing everything he could to do that, and he was taking the Bible to support him doing that. Such as everything that you do will succeed, God will give you strength to do, etc., etc. And he had the passages, had them up on the wall, looked at them, read them periodically, regularly, and he was assured. He was confident by those passages that he was going to make the SEC be drafted or whatever, be brought into an SEC team. His senior year, he was receiving requests from big-name football teams in the SEC College Conference to come play for them. And in the springtime of that year, he got injured. His knee got so hurt that he couldn't play up to the same level that he was playing before. And you know what happened to all those requests? And he went into a tailspin. Because he had verses to say that the Lord would strengthen him. He would prosper his path. He would give him the imaginations of his heart. And folks, all those passages are in the Bible that I just quoted to you. But if we take them in isolation without considering the rest of our Bible, it becomes an occasion of stumbling and temptation. I mentioned this illustration to you 
couple of times where I acted wrongly. When I was newly saved, <clears throat> I was just thrilled. It was thrilling to know that God's Word was true. And all the promises of God are yes and amen. Amen? And so <clears throat> I read in the Bible that God said to the nation Israel that He would not put all these diseases upon you. That is in the Bible, isn't it? God did say it, did He not? I read in Isaiah 53 that at the atonement He carried away all of our infirmities. It's referring to illnesses. And all I believed was, is all I had to do, as it were, was kind of a name it, claim it, take the passage and the promise to myself, and act on it. Well, I didn't want to wear glasses. Glasses are part, my, my, gla my eyes, <clears throat> I am nearsighted and can't see. That's part of the decay of life, isn't it? Well, I decided God could heal me. Question, can God heal me? Yes. God has all power, doesn't He? So, I said, well, so I asked God to heal me. And you know what? I didn't hear anything. So, I decided that the problem was is I didn't have enough faith. That I really wasn't believing the passages and the promises. So I decided that I was going to drive without my glasses. That that would prove to God that I really believed His promise. Now you're shaking your head like that is the absolute stupidest thing that I've ever heard. But you do the very same things in areas of your life. Now, thankfully, my eyes were bad, <laughs> but they weren't as bad as they are now. <clears throat> and thankfully, I wasn't doing this long term. It was like driving the car from my house to school, which was about a mile and a half or two miles down the road. <clears throat> and after a while, I just got depressed because God wasn't doing what He promised that He would do. And I got brought into a dilemma. And my dilemma never was solved till years later. I just decided that God knew something that I didn't know about yet. And so wear your glasses. Now I look back on that and say, that was stupidity. But what was I doing? Folks, where was the temptation? It was to take a promise of God in an isolated manner. Apart from what other passages of Scripture say. Folks, do other passages of Scripture say that I'm going to decay and die one day? Yes or no? Okay, but I'm not looking at that. And in reality, I really wasn't trusting God what I was doing was, I was putting God in a position, I thought, I was putting God in a position where I would force Him to do what He said He would do. 
And that's what the devil's doing. I have no doubt that if Jesus had thrown Himself off of the temple, that the angels would have come and done exactly what God said. But He would have failed and could not have been our Savior. <clears throat> Jesus responds to this temptation by quoting Deuteronomy 6, verse 17. Now that's where I want to go next. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. <clears throat> I'm actually going to read two verses. <clears throat> He's quoting part of the first one. Deuteronomy chapter 6. <clears throat> because what Jesus recognizes... He recognizes that there are other passages of Scripture in the Bible. And does he quote one? He does quote one. And what he quotes is Deuteronomy 6, <clears throat> verse 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested Him at Massah. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and His testimonies and His statutes which He has commanded you. Now I want you to note in verse 17, you shall diligently keep the commandments, plural. So you Psalm 91 is a promise, is it not? But are there other commandments? Yes. You should diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and His testimonies, plural, and His statutes, plural, which He has commanded you. There are other things in our Bible. There's other testimonies of the Lord, statutes of the Lord, commandments of the Lord in our Bible other than Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12. And we are to be diligent to make sure in our decisions of life, to the best of our ability, and we, we are frail in this, to consider the whole counsel of God in our decisions. And so he quotes Deuteronomy 6 verse 16. This is another commandment of God, is it not? You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now this is what Jesus is thinking. What He is thinking is, <clears throat> are there other passages? And He comes to the conclusion that what the devil is doing with the Scripture is asking Christ to put God to the test. What would be the test? Throw yourself off because God's going to do what? He's going to bear you up. He's going to deliver you just like Psalm 91 says. So just act on that and force God to do what He says. But what was also in Jesus' mindset 
in Deuteronomy 6 verse 16 was an event in the life of the nation of Israel where that nation tested him at Massa. And that's where we want to go next. We want to go to Exodus <clears throat> chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17. Jesus is sitting there thinking, Devil, you are trying to put me in a situation like Masa. What was God's command concerning this event? Don't put God to the test. What was happening at Masa? Well, let's read it. Seven verses. Exodus 17. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of Zin, according to the command of the Lord, encamped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Are they in bodily necessity? Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Everybody see that? Moses recognized what was happening in their quarreling. Verse 3, But the people thirsted there for water. And they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now... Have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And folks, this is perhaps one of the first events where the nation of Israel are using their children as an excuse not to do something. Because when they didn't go into the land of Canaan, they did it, they said, for the sake of their children. And God said, your children will go in, but you won't. Moses cried out to the Lord saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more and they will stone me. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he named the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord. Now here's how they tested the Lord. By saying, is the Lord among us or not? Everybody everybody see that? So their demands were twofold. One, they wanted water. Would you want water? Just nod your head yes. 
The second thing they questioned was, why have you brought us up out of Egypt? You're only going to kill us and our children and our livestock because there's nothing to drink. What was happening here? Well, brethren, there is a form of quarreling or complaining that questions God. The question was, is God really among us or not? And what they were doing, I liken it to a two-year-old. They're throwing a tantrum in order to try to force the parents to do what they want them to do. The children of Israel are quarreling and complaining in order to try to force Moses and the Lord to act by giving them what? Water. Now you think about all that God has shown them just to get them out of Egypt. And they're saying that God did all the plagues and He did the dividing of the Red Sea and He did all this because He was just going to bring us into the wilderness and kill us. And brethren, from a carnal perspective... It worked. Did they get water? Did they? And you know what's going to happen? Numbers 14.22 says they put God to the test like this ten times. Ten times. And you remember one of those, Moses got so irate, he struck the rock not once, but twice. What the Lord is saying is, is that this temptation and them testing God was something that was consistent and regular throughout their whole years. And Psalm 95.8 says, that their quarreling and putting God to the test was an evidence that their hearts were hard. They had hardened hearts to the Lord. And the Lord says later on in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 22, that when we test God this way, it angers Him. And parents, you know a little bit of that, don't you? When your children throw a temper tantrum, how do you feel? Angry. And this is the way the Lord feels when we do this. When we complain, trying to force God, grabbing isolated promises out of the Bible, and saying, look, you said, if I throw myself off the temple, angels would protect me. Do it! It provokes God to anger. 
Now there is a right way of recalling scriptural promises to the Lord. And it's by taking into consideration the whole body of Scripture. Ten times this congregation provoked God to anger. There's debate on where those ten times are, but in the Jewish Babylonian Talmud, they list ten times. And if you want the references, I can give them to you, but twice at the Red Sea, twice because they didn't have water, twice because they had a lack of food, twice because they wanted meat instead of the manna, one time because they committed idolatry to the golden calf, and lastly one time when they sent the spies into the land of Canaan. Whether those are the ten times or not, I don't know. But they doubted the goodness of God. They doubted God's ability. And they tried to force God to act by complaining. <coughs> and brethren, here, here's a real danger. When we do complain, and we all have complained, and God does come in and act on our behalf, don't take it that the complaining forced Him to do it. It was His patience and long-suffering and mercies to us, just like it was to the nation of Israel. The word Meribah means quarreling. <clears throat> And where we have a heart of complaint, it draws us to a place where we can test God. You can quarrel with people. You can quarrel about your circumstances. You can quarrel about your health. You can quarrel about just about anything. But ultimately, you're quarreling against the God who gave you the circumstances. That's been a tremendous help to me through the years. In Deuteronomy 32 verse 51 says that the reason why we quarrel with God is because we don't treat Him as holy in that circumstance. Or I'll put it in New Testament terms. Peter writes that when you're in the midst of suffering, sanctify the Lord your God in your heart. 1 Peter 3.15 As we go back to Matthew, in other words, brethren, Psalm 91 is not the only psalm. Yes? Psalm 22 is there also, isn't it? Psalm 23. Psalm 110, as I couldn't remember this morning. <clears throat> There's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. There's the wisdom of Ecclesiastes and of Job. There's the prophets. There's the Gospel, the book of the Gospels. 
There's the book of Acts, Ephesians, all the way through Revelation. 66 books. And when we're drawn into a hard place, we have to tell ourselves, are there other passages in the Scripture to consider about the Lord before I make a decision based on a favorite passage or two? I'll never forget a a terrible, terrible situation that I read about of a drug addict. He was on heroin. And he was so frustrated with his heroin addiction. And he read in his Bible that if our eye offends us, pluck it out. If our arm offends us, cut it off. And he knew that this was the arm that injected the heroin into his veins. And he cut his arm off. And he died. He bled to death. That's not what the passage is saying. But it's an example of taking a passage. Even if it's quoted properly, even if it's in the right context, and we don't consider what is called the analogy of the faith or all the Scriptures about the Lord. And folks, this is what makes decisions, hard decisions, so hard for me is that it's easy just to rest on the things that I know. But there's a lot of things about the Lord I don't know. And the agony becomes searching the whole Scripture to try to lay a proper foundation so I can make the right decision in this hard place that I'm in. One commentator wrote, Trust in God means that we do not force Him into action. God does not need to demonstrate His presence. He said He's with us, didn't He? And many times we'll make a statement, well God, if you're really with me, then I'm going to act upon this promise to see if you really are. I gave the illustration of this young man who believed the Bible promised him success in all of his ways. I gave you the illustration of myself when it came to my health. Are there passages that say that God can heal with your cancer? Yes or no? Yes. But the fact is, is that your trust is seen more when He doesn't heal it than when He does. It's the trial of your faith. The trial, the fiery trial that brings the trust. Many people in our own circles 
perhaps certain promises about their family and their children. And there are wonderful promises. Let me give you a wisdom promise. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he what? He won't depart from it. It's a wisdom promise. But are there other things in the Bible? Yes. We have many examples of godly men who did godly things and their children did not follow in their steps. If anything, what that promise from Proverbs says to me is, train up your children in the ways of the Lord and pray for them. And by God's grace, they won't depart from what you've taught them. The devil in the first temptation used good and natural created desires to tempt Christ to provide for His necessities outside of scriptural boundaries. We need to make sure that something that alleviates our discomfort is really scriptural. The second temptation is using God's own words to violate what God has said in another place. The devil's very good at this. He did it in the Garden of Eden. <clears throat> and brethren, I want to repeat again that this is why we need to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. How weak are we? How ignorant are we? Folks, how ignorant are you of the Bible? You think you got a handle on the Bible? How unknowledgeable we are. How deficient is our love. How weak is our faith? And how quickly we move from the days of sunshine and being confident that we're walking with the Lord to the days where the clouds are gray and we see a storm off on the horizon and we begin to elevate our necessities and the things that we need in life and provision for our bodies and then we begin to take passages and we actually end up violating what God has said. We take a job in a place where there is no church. We take a job that's going to take us away from our time with the Lord and our improvement with Him. We forget that the main goal in life is to be conformed into His image. We're no better than the children of Israel. May it not be said of us that God has numbered the times that we have tested Him and His patience run out with us. Because we know what happened to the children of Israel. To that generation, what happened? They were scattered through the wilderness for 40 years. 
Folks, we don't want that. Amen? We want to walk with the Lord. Young people, this is especially tempting for you. This is why a pastor should be an elder, not a novice, lest they be tempted. The devil is more sly than we give him credit for. And we're too easily persuaded than what we think we have the ability not to. May God deliver us from this evil. In His name, may He be glorified. Let's pray.